uh, begin today, we are moving into the next and uh, the fourth and final sermon of our sermon series on discipleship, as you can see there, walking in the truth. And we are making our way now um, to, this, to this last section, and a section that kind of is taking a different turn um, from the previous sermons that we've heard. Um, up to this point, primarily, what we have looked at uh, is to a large extent um, inwardly focused, inward with regards to ourselves, with the church, um, maturity in Christ, good things, right things. Um, but we now turn our attention in this process of discipleship, of maturity in Christ, to outward uh, focus. We now move on to the topic of going, a necessary and essential step in our discipleship process. Because if we come to the place where, where we think ourselves mature in Christ, we think ourselves good disciples, having been thoroughly discipled, and yet our focus is entirely inward, uh, whether to ourselves or to our brothers and sisters in Christ, then I think we, that we have missed a key element of discipleship, that being uh, the mindset of missions. My title for today, which will be on the screen, is The Church in Motion, Gospel Missions with an Ecclesial Mindset. Now, I know that word uh, ecclesial maybe is foreign to some of you, but it's really not that complicated of a word. It comes from the root word uh, in Greek, ekklesia, meaning the church. So ecclesial just means pertaining to the church. So the church in motion, gospel missions with a church-centered mindset, an ecclesial mindset. And this is kind of going to be a, a somewhat of a different take on the topic of missions than maybe what you're used to hearing. Um, because I'm going to take this topic of missions, of going, of being sent, and apply it not merely to individuals, but to the church. Our passage today is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. If you want to go ahead and turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 15. And my main idea for, for today is this. The people of God are called to take up the mission of God by expanding the kingdom of God. The people of God are called to take up the mission of God by expanding the kingdom of God. Now, I've thrown a, a, a word in there, the mission of God. And it'd be easy to kind of throw, and I think we do as Christians sometimes, throw these words or these phrases around and use them in our sermons, use them uh, on a daily basis, and oftentimes fail to really define them accurately. The mission of God, or what is commonly called the missio dei uh, in the Latin, because everything sounds cooler in Latin, so it's the Missio Dei, uh, is, is this idea that, that really theologians have been trying to really pin down for some time like, and, and accurately define what is the mission of God. And there are some that have done a really good job of defining it, some very uh, broad, very thorough, others more pointed, and I think more uh, seeking to be accurate on a particular singular focus. And, and there are some that are good, some that are, are not as good with regards to the, to the mission of God and how some theologians, some who study God's word will define it. But I would make the argument that the mission of God or the missio dei is most accurately seen, most accurately portrayed uh, in the culmination of the work and person of Jesus Christ here on earth. He was sent by God on mission, was he not? So when we want to consider what is the mission of God, I would argue, I would put forth 
that the primary way that we can see the mission of God in action is by looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for us, this is important. Because Scripture makes clear that if we are disciples of Christ, then we have been commissioned by Christ to fulfill the mission of God here on earth. Jesus says as much in John chapter 20, verse 21, where after his resurrection, he says to his disciples, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus makes clear that in the same way I was sent by the Father on mission, I now am sending you, my disciples, my followers, on mission. Christ was commissioned by God. We have been commissioned by Christ as the church. We have been called as the church of Christ to continue the work that Christ began, to carry on that mission that he was engaged in. That's why he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We as the church today have been commissioned, have been sent on the same mission that Christ was on. We have the privilege and the joy and the responsibility of carrying on Christ's mission here on earth. Now, we are, are not dying for anyone's sins, right? We have not been given that responsibility, but we have been given as the church the responsibility to take the good news of the gospel of what Christ has done and take it to the ends of the earth. We all know the Great Commission, Matthew 28. So when we consider then what it is that we have been called to, what is our mission? What is the church's mission? And when we, we must consider Christ's mission. And Luke 19.10 tells us pretty clearly, the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save the lost. Now this may not be an all-encompassing definition of what Christ did here on earth, right? This is, this is a very, one of those very central kind of pointed overarching uh, ideas and definitions, but I think that it is a good start for us when we consider what it is that we, as the people of God, ought to be about. This gives us a great starting point for what it means to live as the people of God commissioned by Christ Jesus. If we are following in his steps and carrying on his mission, we ought to be seeking and saving the lost as an essential part of what it is that we are doing as a people. So our text today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, hopefully will help us bring this to bear. Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let's bow our heads and pray.
Lord, now that we have read your word, we ask, Lord, that you would do the work by the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, to open our eyes to see what your word has declared to us and commanded of us and calls us to. Lord, may you convict us where we need convicting. May you encourage us where we need encouraging. Lord, may you grow us into mature disciples of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, as we see in uh, coming out in verses 7 through 12, is living out the uncomfortable mission. Verses 7 through 12 provide for us, uh, as Paul is writing, a glimpse into Paul's life, but also a glimpse really into what it looks like to live on mission, to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's really a pretty uncomfortable calling, isn't it? A pretty uncomfortable life that Paul describes. He says that we're jars of clay. We are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. Uh, We are struck down. Uh, We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. This is uh, a few verses that don't describe all kinds of jolliness and and comfort and and luxury, right? The life that's being described here by Paul is is one of suffering. It's one of persecution. It's one of frustration in many ways. And yet, Paul says this is what we are called to. This is what it means. He says, yes, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We still have hope, he says. Persecuted, but never forsaken. In the midst of this very uncomfortable life of living on mission, as Paul is, living according to what God has called him to, there's also a great amount of hope and joy, not despair, not feeling forgotten, but feeling loved and cared for by the Father. What is the chief end of man? If any of you are familiar with, with the Westminster Confession, Jacob, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's exactly right. I believe that this is a very good and very true statement of what the chief end of man is. But I also believe that this chief end ultimately applies to the church also, not simply to us as individuals. So then, it's my belief, my conviction, that the church should be seeking to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. One of the problems in the church today, I think, is that we are sometimes too quickly to latch on to the second half of that statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We are too quick to latch on to this idea of enjoying God forever. And I think many times we come to church with this kind of mindset of looking to enjoy God. And, and we should enjoy God. Absolutely we should. The idea of enjoying God sounds great to us, especially when we think of all the other earthly things that we enjoy, Right? When we consider some things that we enjoy, I know for me, there's all kinds of things that I enjoy. I enjoy disc golf. I enjoy good food. I enjoy my family, my sons, my wife. I enjoy watching TV. I enjoy all kinds of things. And I think it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, why wouldn't I also want to enjoy Christ? That sounds great. Yeah, I'll enjoy Christ. The problem is, though, is that we misunderstand oftentimes how it is that we truly will find joy in Christ and pleasure in him and enjoy him. Because when most of us hear uh, of joy and enjoying Christ, we tend, here in the West, I think, 
we tend to equate joy with comfort. Or at the very least, we think that comfort is a necessary ingredient for joy. That is, if I'm uncomfortable, I won't have joy. And I think I can clearly demonstrate this for us when we simply even consider uh, missionaries that we hear stories about at work in places around the world, or maybe throughout history. When we think of missionaries who do these crazy things like sell themselves into slavery so that they can go and share the gospel with an unreached people group. Did you know people have done that? Not just once, but multiple times. People have sold themselves into slavery or indentured servitude so that they can go and preach the gospel to people who have never heard it. Or we hear about people who are living in places where they have no access to clean water, no access to air conditioning, are sleeping on the ground, all of this for the sake of reaching people for the gospel. And what do we often think? We think that sounds miserable. That sounds awful. I don't see how anyone could enjoy that. I know that's, that's my mindset a lot of the time because it sounds uncomfortable. It sounds terribly uncomfortable. I think this is a demonstration of us that we have a misunderstanding as Christians about where it is that joy comes from. Joy in Christ doesn't come from physical comfort. I propose, I would argue that there is a better channel a better avenue to obtain joy. And it's found in sacrificial obedience to Christ and his mission. Because if you talk to any of those missionaries that I just named, I would almost guarantee you that every single one of them says, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was one of the most fulfilling and enjoying, enjoyment-filled times of my life. Consider even what happened to the apostles in the book of Acts in chapter 5. When Peter and the apostles are preaching in the temples and tons and tons of Jews are coming and hearing what they have to say and are being saved. And the Jewish leaders are infuriated. And after trying to lock them up, but then they miraculously were freed from prison, the Jewish leaders bring them in. And they're, they're planning on killing them. They want them dead. But for fear of what the crowd might do or for fear of, of upsetting God... They decide rather than to kill them, they're going to beat them. And so they beat them and they charge them not to preach the name of Jesus anymore. And they sent them out. And what did the disciples do? They didn't cry. They didn't boo-hoo about their wounds where they were beaten. The Bible says that they left that day rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer persecution for the name of Christ. And... Day after day, from house to house, and in the temple, they did not cease to preach that Christ is Jesus. Not a one of those guys, though they were not in the most comfortable of situations, were miserable, were angry, were bitter about their situation. Each and every one of them was so overwhelmed by the joy of what it is that they had the privilege of doing. Or I would even present to you a very real and current and, and present situation of some friends of our church, uh, uh, the, the Murrays, if you're familiar with Josh and Autumn Murray, then you might know uh, the situation that they're in right now. They have been serving as missionaries in Honduras, but they are in the process of being called back to the United States because Josh's mom has recently passed away. And the three children that she had adopted are now going to uh, be adopted by Josh and Autumn, and they are now responsible for these 
three children and for the, the care of, of his mom's estate and for managing things here, which means that they're going to have to leave the mission field in Honduras. And they're not rejoicing that they're able to come back to the States where it's more comfortable and where they have a better life. Honduras is not all that comfortable. Yet they are saddened by the fact that they're not able to serve in Honduras anymore. The mission of God is uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean that it isn't joyful. In fact, I would make the argument that we as Christians oftentimes rob ourselves of the greatest amount of joy for the sake of our comfort. We exchange joy in Christ for temporary physical comfort. I think this is true. Even when it comes to the most basic of things, of I'd rather be comfortable sitting here in my workspace not talking to anyone than go out on a limb and be in an uncomfortable situation where someone might not like me. Let alone going onto the mission field where I have no air conditioning or toilets. We won't even go to the person sitting next to us because it might be uncomfortable. And I, I am convinced that in doing this, not only are we failing to bring the most glory to God, but by uh, just logic, we are failing to achieve the greatest amount of joy that is available for us in Christ. In our desperate attempt to find the most joy that we can, we have sacrificed the greatest joy for comfort. Point number two. The Great Commission is to the church. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and bring us up with you into his presence. Notice Paul's language here. Paul speaks here not merely of himself of his calling, of mission. But he says, we have the same spirit of faith, according to that which is written. And then he quotes the Psalms when he says, I believed and so I spoke. Paul even unites his mission, his work, with that of the Old Testament psalmist in Psalm 116. And he also by, uh, uh, unites all of us as a church to say we all have the same spirit of faith. We also believe. We also speak. We also will be raised up together. We are in this thing together. The Great Commission was given to the church. For far too long, I think that the Great Commission, this call to make disciples, to spread the gospel, to expand the kingdom of God, has been marketed almost exclusively as an individual thing. It's been marketed almost exclusively on an individual basis. Many of the books that we read on evangelism or on the mission of God or on missions in general are written with a focus on the individual. Not all of them, but if you try and think right now of like the ones you know of, they're probably written towards an individual. And I would argue, and Paul, I think, would agree with me, that this is a charge not merely for individuals, but for the church. My hope for our church, for Redeemer Fellowship Church, is that we see the mission of God as something that the church is called to, not merely individuals. I think we honestly do ourselves a disservice when we think individually with regards to the mission of God too. When we think simply about how daunting it is, the, the task that we have been called to, why would we want to do that alone? Why wouldn't we want a, a family, a body to rally around us to do this together? 
This is a, a hard and, as I said, uncomfortable mission that we have been given. We ought to be doing it together with each other in community, with our families. As we've already stated, the church is commanded by Jesus to carry forward the mission of God by expanding the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel and reaching the lost. But the church must also recognize the fact that we, are not, we have not merely been given a mission but we, in fact, are the result of Christ's mission. The church exists as a monument to the fact that Christ's mission here on earth, which he was sent by the Father to do, was a success. We are the proof. Therefore, the mission of God ought to be a central part of who we are. It ought to seep into the identity of Redeemer Fellowship Church and of all churches of Jesus Christ. This matters because it helps us see the missional nature of the church as central to who we are, not as tertiary. In his book on the church entitled Sojourners and Strangers, Dr. Greg Allison, a professor at Southern Seminary, says this about the missional nature of the church. He says, No more is the church the chaplain to an assumed Christian society, nor the moral glue that holds things together nor the guardian of civility and duty. Rather, the church is the missional body commissioned by its head, Jesus Christ, with the same commission with which he was commissioned by the Father. The missional church is identified by and engages in the missio dei, the mission of God. The mission of God then is for the whole church. It is not to be relegated to some committee or to certain individuals but it should course through the very veins of our church and infiltrate everything that we do so that we don't have designated missional things, but that everything that we do is done from a missional perspective and from a heart of mission. And finally, we see point number three, the result of our sacrifice. God is glorified. Verse 15, I think, just bursts forth in this awesome kind of statement of, of the glory of God. It says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul makes the point in this verse that what results from grace extending to more and more people is that God is glorified. Verse 15 leads us back to where we started in point number one. That what's at stake here is the glory of God. That is what is at stake with regards to the church's missional nature. And let me be clear, God will receive his glory. God is not going to not receive his glory if we do not do the work that we were called to do. But he's going to receive it in another way. And many times in a way that we might not like. We sometimes forget that God is glorified as much through his wrath and through his punishment as he is through his saving grace. And it really starts to get even more amazing when we consider the fact that, yes, God's glory is at stake, but the burden is not necessarily on us. It's not on us to change people's hearts. It is God who saves. We are commanded to carry the message of redemption to all people, but it is the irresistible grace of God that will extend into their lives and change their hearts. 
It is not our talents, not our abilities, not our oratory skills that are required for grace to do its work. Amen? It is the grace of God extending to more and more people. That is what will result in the glory of God. We get to be the vessels that God has chosen. Jars of clay, as Paul says. But that is all we are. The glory does not go to us, nor is the ultimate burden of changing people's hearts on us. We are simply the vessels that God has blessed with the privilege to do his work. That's why Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, I think is so comforting here, where Paul says to the Ephesian church, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. The power of the Holy Spirit is the means by which grace will extend to more and more people. This should cause us to, to take great satisfaction in the fact that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be amazing. We don't have to look a certain way. All we have to do is faithfully submit ourselves to the mission of God that he has called us to. That's it. If people's hearts aren't changed, guess what? God's still going to receive his glory. It is not our job to change their hearts. But none of this will happen. This missional aspect of the church, this taking of the gospel to the nations, none of it will happen unless the Lord fills us with a passion for the lost. I know for myself, I find myself incredibly convicted by, by my lack of passion for the lost. I read this parable. It's a modern parable. It's not a biblical parable, but I think it was uh, just extremely powerful with regards to its statement on um, the danger of the church. Rather, the danger that the church could fall into. It's written by a guy named Theodore Weedle, I think is how his name is pronounced. He wrote it in 1953, and it's about a, a small life-saving station. And I'm going to read it for us. It is somewhat lengthy, but I would ask you to, to bear with me as we, we read this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only a boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, and it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and wanted to give their time and money and effort in support of its work. So new boats were bought, and new crews were, tra were tra trained, and the little life-saving station began to grow. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a little more comfortable place should be provided for the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station uh, became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going out to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. 
The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower and ha shower house built outside the club where the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the, in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life. Some members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose, and they pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. They were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. I think that this parable is pretty self-explanatory when we think about how this very thing can happen in the life of the church. It is so easy in the life of the church for us to forget the life-saving mission that we have been put on by Jesus Christ. What did Jesus come to do? To seek and to save the lost. And yet so often our churches today seem to have a whole other idea of what their task is, of what their role is, of what their job is. This is what happens when churches forget what they were commissioned by Christ to do. And it is my prayer and my hope that this never happened at Redeemer Fellowship Church. But I never want to think that we are above this happening. The more we forget to pray and ask the Lord to break our hearts for the lost, the more we lose sight of the mission with which God has given us, of making disciples, of saving lost souls out at sea, the more we, we lose our identity as a missional church of God. Our God is a missional God. He is a sending God who sent Jesus Christ down to this earth in order to save, seek and save the lost. And Christ now has sent us to do the same thing on his behalf, to take the gospel to the nations, to the world around us, to our neighbors, to our co-workers. The danger that we have is, to for, is forgetting the mission to which we have been called. So the question then could, should rightly be asked, how do we do this? How is it that we as a church maintain a missional understanding? And I would offer for us just a few things. First of all, I think we need to rearrange our thinking about the things that we're already doing. I think it is very easy for us to think about the activities in the life of the church, to think about the events that we do, and for the idea of it being missional to not be present at all. I think it would serve us well to think, okay, this upcoming fellowship event that we're doing, how can we make it missional? How can we promote the mission of God through this event? The fall festival's coming up, and we're about to serve food down at the fall festival. How is it that 
the missional aspect of the church can course through our veins and can express itself while we are at the fall festival. I think we can also ask ourselves, what comforts have we been unwilling to give up for the sake of the mission of God? I know for myself that this is true, that there are comforts that I've been unwilling to give up for the sake of the mission of God. For some of you in here, I, it would be foolish of me to think that God wasn't calling you to give up your comforts of living here in the United States to go to another country to preach the gospel to people who have never heard. That may very well be the case for some of you in here. But even if that's not the case, what comforts are you refusing to give up even in your daily life to reach those around you for the sake of the gospel? To be missional where you're at. And lastly, I think this is also connected with rearranging our thinking about what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. But I would encourage us that giving of our tithes and offerings can be a missional act and should be. Because I would just encourage you with this. So many people in here probably, I mean, you didn't know who Ed Collins was, so I'm assuming you probably don't have a perfect idea of what it is that happens with uh, the money that we give and give to uh, the Southern Baptist Convention through the cooperative program. But every, uh, every all the money that, that we get here at Redeemer Fellowship Church, we give a percentage of that directly to a category you're going to see tonight called missions. And within that, there's this thing called the cooperative program. The cooperative program, the money goes from us to the state level of the Southern Baptist Convention and then ultimately to the national level of the Southern Baptist Convention. And just to give you just the number from last year, last year, $367 million were brought in through the cooperative program at the national level of the Southern Baptist Convention. And of those $367 million, $314 million went directly to missions, North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. And I tell you this not so that you will simply say, okay, well, I'll just keep giving the same amount. That might be the case for you. But when you give, give with that in mind. Give with an open hand knowing I am giving not just to serve the comforts of our church, not just so that Denton will have a paycheck, but I'm giving for the sake of the gospel going forth to the nations. Because it is. The money that you give is not wasted. The money that we give for the sake of missions is not wasted. It is an important investment. It is an investment that we are called to. So even rearranging our thinking around our giving can help encourage us, can help create within our church a missional identity. And that is my hope. Like I said, this is probably not your, your average sermon on missions, on being sent, on going but I would challenge each and every one of us that there is no true, no right, no good discipleship if it is disconnected from the local church. Therefore, if going and being missional is an important aspect of discipleship, then it has to be tied to the local church. Don't think that you have to do this thing on your own. The mission of God is not yours alone to bear. It is the church's. So let us take it up and bear it together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the mission that you have put us on. Lord, I know that we've already confessed our sin before you today, but Lord, I want to stand before you here right now and confess my sin, that I have failed, Lord, 
that I have put my comforts above your mission time and time again. Lord, I ask that you would forgive me for that. I ask that, Lord, we as a church, that you would open up the blind spots that we have failed to see where we have put our comforts, our own desires, our own uh, expectations above the mission. And Lord, may you break us of that. Help us to see, Lord, that true joy in you and enjoyment of God does not come through being as comfortable as we possibly can, but it comes through being sacrificially, sacrificially missional. I pray that you would produce that in us. I pray that you would break our hearts for the lost. That when people think of Redeemer Fellowship Church, they would not just think that, uh, that they're the college church or that they are uh, the, the church that has a formal liturgy, but Lord, that they would think that is a church that cares about lost people. I pray this in Jesus' name.